Well, hey everybody, so sorry for that small delay. We uh, weren't able to get, get to you last week, but we're back. We're back in the studios. We're both feeling, I'm hoping, pretty good, Mark. Um, but hey, it's the Wit and Whiskey cast. Uh, you know, we, we may be late, but uh, we're always coming back. <laughs> um, I'm here, I'm DJ Gagnon, <laughs> along with my fantastic co-host, Mark Rossetti. Say hi, Mark. Put that on a T-shirt. We may be late, but we're always coming back. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, we're good. Um, the uh, as my wife just continues to pound upstairs. Uh, so sorry if you hear that in the background. She's trying to come through the floor of the studio for whatever reason. Uh, <laughs> the uh, yeah, no. Last week was kind of a clusterfuck, but here we are. Um, you know, we're back. We're I don't know if we're better than ever, but we're adequate. We'll go with that. <laughs> That's good. Well, why don't we just roll into it? What you been up to in the last, uh, I guess, two weeks now, man? Oh, God. I came back from vacation, which, you know, was a total shit show in, in a good way. But it was just like, holy shit, you know, two, 11 days or so before we went to Carlisle, the Cosworth didn't even run. It was in pieces. Then... Three days before we went, uh, the heater core shit the bed, and we were kind of patching it together. We didn't even know if we were going to go. And we went down there, and we ended up taking second place. Wow. <laughs> which was not deserved at all, but we'll take it. <laughs> uh, and we partied pretty hard afterwards, and then we came back a little hungover. Uh, but... That was when I realized why I don't take a whole hell of a lot of time off work. I mean, there's only four of us, and three of us are... One of us is part-time, three of us are full-time. So there was quite a bit of work to catch up on last week. <clears throat> but uh, we did it. We survived. And then, and then the 4th of July just happened as we uh, are recording this. And that was a lot of fun. Still have all my fingers and toes, so that's good. Uh, Romulus was kind of scared, but he's all right. He's good. He survived his first, his first fourth, easy for me to say. What about you, buddy? Ah, oh, man, it's just, it's been more housework. Uh, the office is still almost done. Uh, I did some paint touch-ups this weekend, and then my dad's coming this coming weekend as we record. Um, as you're listening to this, my dad will be here two days later. Cool. Uh, we're going to put all of the trim uh, that is missing, and then the rooms will officially be done. Uh, the fun part of that is that the bookcase is getting delivered tomorrow. I don't know if I told you this yet, Mark. I bought a seven-foot-tall, six, six-and-a-half, I think, foot-wide uh, bookcase, wall-to-wall to go into the office. Uh, it's being delivered tomorrow in a box that is 267 pounds. Jesus H. Christ. Now, how many bookcases in your house do you have now? Uh, wait, I can count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh, I think there's only 14 in this room. There might be four along that wall, though. So let's say 15 in this room alone. Okay, that's one room. Uh, Holly's got a big double bookcase, so that's 16. And then I'll have a giant wall-to-wall bookcase in the, in the office. Now, see, like... You know, I consider myself pretty handy. I like to tinker, but I just hate assembling furniture. I mean, I do it, but I just, I loathe it. I bitch the whole time. Like, you kind of like it, though, don't you? Uh, yeah. 
I don't hate it by any means. I, I do kind of enjoy putting it together. Uh, hammering the backs on these bookcases is like, uh, I mean, one of the normal bookcases in our library is damn like 40 nails to put into the back of it. Oh shit. I forgot the two in the kids room. So that's like 19 bookcases. Um, Jesus fuck. But that like this bookcase is bigger. It's probably the biggest piece of furniture I will have ever built. Uh, and I barely have enough room in the office to build it and then like prop it up and put it up against the wall. So, uh, it's going to be an interesting project, Mark. I've never done a bookcase this big before. Uh, the office, I think, is like eight and a half feet wide, and it's a seven-foot bookcase, so I've got a foot and a half to play with. So basically, you're Jeff Bezos, and like the doorway is like that bridge in the Netherlands that he's trying to take down. Uh, sure. I don't <laughs> know if I get that reference. Basically, Bezos had a yacht built for himself. Uh, and the shipyard is somewhere in the Netherlands, but it's actually too big to leave the shipyard because there's this bridge that's in the way. And so he's just like, cool, let's just tear it down. And obviously the people of the Netherlands are not too keen on that idea. Huh. Seems like there's probably a better way to do that. You'd think. Huh. Interesting. I, I'm, other than that, uh, this weekend we got to hang out with some friends. It was Holly's birthday today, so... Uh, it I took, was. Happy birthday, Holly. Yes, I, I'll let her know. Um, and uh, then we... Let's see, what did we do today? Uh, we kind of just slept in a little bit, and then I took her out for like a late breakfast, early lunch at a local tea parlor. And it was like a full-on English tea uh, that we did. So, you know, I, we each had our own teapot and some nice fancy teacups. And we got like a tiered tower of tea sandwiches and desserts and scones and things like that. Uh, so all in all, lots of fun. Um, and then just kind of ran around, did a bunch of errands, got to see her parents. So it was just, it was a lot of stuff this weekend. You know, went, went to a lake with some friends and, um, did some housework yesterday. It, it's we've been all over the place, but I, I'm thinking it's it's gonna finally quiet down a little bit here because Holly's last official day of work was last week. Yeah, tick tick tick. It's uh, coming up on that time, isn't it? Yeah, we're like less than eleven weeks out from birth at this point. Yeah, that's it's gonna be here before you know it. I know it's cliche, but goddamn. Uh, it's like gonna be here before we know it and also cannot come fast enough. That's fair. Yeah. I I can understand that. Yeah. Well, Mark, uh, what what are you drinking today? I, uh, I don't see anything on our topics list here, so I can't wait to hear what you say. Well, I'm, you ever, you know, stumble across something that you just go, huh, that's different. Like every day I feel like. So I came across tonight's concoction by doing something incredibly out of character for myself. I was thumbing through the pages of an issue of Esquire. Oh, dear. Why? (laughs) It was laying around, and I was bored. So, uh, and there was cocktail recipes, and I was just mostly skimming. I wasn't really reading. And I saw that the first ingredient at the top of the page was rye whiskey, and so, okay, I'm intrigued now. 
And I started reading the thing and just went, huh, okay. So I made one tonight. So tonight I am drinking what they call the Brain Duster. And basically, uh, it all the jokes for, you know, I went and looked it up. It's obviously not just Esquire that is advertising this. Uh, you could find numerous twists on the same recipe. And all the, the different websites and everything kind of make the same joke that basically... This is brain bleach. Like, if you want to forget a lot of your problems, make a couple of these and sit down and drink them. So I'm going to give you the ingredients list, and we'll go from there. One ounce rye whiskey. One ounce Italian vermouth. So you're like, okay, it's a Manhattan, whatever. One ounce absinthe. <laughs> That's too much absinthe. <laughs> And then uh, two to three dashes of uh, Angostrusa bitters, you know, to taste. So you have three ounces of liquor, and they recommend a high-proof rye whiskey as well, you know, 90 to 100 proof. It comes out sort of a funky, yellowy, orange color. You put it in a chilled glass so you get a little bit of froth after you, you mix it. As you might imagine, absinthe is the primary flavor note, <laughs> as it is in pretty much everything. Oh, of course. Um, but the before and the after is kind of like a Manhattan, sort of. Um, you definitely get the rye. Uh, when I make them, you get a little hit of the vermouth, because, I mean, as we've talked about on the Witten Whiskey, I actually like vermouth on like 95% of the population. And then you get absinthe, 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 and then a little bit of the rye bite at the very end to kind of carry you out. Uh, I actually like them. I mean, they're not bad. Definitely, I think if you had, you know, three or four of these, you probably would forget a lot of your problems, at least for a little while. But it's definitely not something I'm going to put in the everyday rotation. If for nothing else, absinthe is not something you should be drinking on a regular basis. <laughs> Um, I'm not Hemingway as much as I, you know, would like to think so. Although I do have a body like him, but otherwise. <laughs> what is this uh, cocktail called? The Brain Duster. And a lot of, uh, a lot of spellings have a dash between the two words. Although if you just type in Brain Duster, it'll come up. Sweet Jesus, Mark. I, I mean, it's a Sazerac for people who hate themselves. <laughs> well, <laughs> guilty as charged, Your Honor. <laughs> Um, but I thought it was interesting because it does go back to what we talk about here on the W&W, that there basically are four cocktails. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, they're just, at the end of the day, there's four cocktails. There's cocktails, but, and then there's hate yourself. But, I mean, it's, it's not bad. It's certainly something to try once, uh, if nothing else. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend driving afterwards, <laughs> especially in your case, buddy. No, no, I, th this would blaze me well past Whirly. Um, but I use some Grande Absinthe. I use the uh, local PA Dad's Hat Rye, which is a good 90 plus proof rye, uh, you know, and then standard Martini and Rossi Vermouth, et cetera, et cetera. So, mm. uh, you know, it's a little, by the time you add it all together, it's a little on the pricey side. I wouldn't want to order this in a restaurant, but it's not bad. What about <laughs> you? What are you drinking, buddy? Uh, well, I went and f and found some uh, decent nips at the liquor store this weekend. 
um, and found some stuff I hadn't tried, and I figured it would be good. I, I've done cocktails for a few episodes, uh, so I wanted to get back to some some classic whiskey review here. Uh, so I picked up a nip of Jameson Caskmates, and there's actually a couple of different editions. They've got an IPA version and a stout version, oh. and unlike Mark, I don't hate myself, so I got, a, I got the stout edition. I've actually had this. Uh, I, uh, I want to tell you that I can tell a difference. Oh, no, no. And, uh, I don't, I don't know if I, if I just don't have a beer palette. Um, I don't know, man, it's Jameson. It seems a little bit smoother. Um, but I tend to kind of expect something out of a cascaged, whiskey that I'm just not getting here. Like I, I kind of feel like the stout flavor and the Jameson just kind of meld together and disappear into each other. And I don't really get that, the layer of complexity that I expect out of something like cascaged and like a sherry or a port cask, but it's not bad. If you like stout, um, this would probably pair really well with, uh, you know, a, what what are those uh, cocktails where you drop a drop uh, a, uh, a shot of whiskey into an a, Irish car bomb? Well, you're not really supposed to say that. I guess a half and half. Um, <laughs> no, you're not really supposed to say those anymore. Uh, it's probably fine in a bomb drink. Um, they have better names now, but I can't for the life of me think of what they are. Um, it's it would probably be fine in that. Uh, I think if this were a tiny bit more specialized, maybe if Jameson and like Guinness had done a team up and it was a little bit more explicit and you, you know, I had something to go off of here. Um, there's supposed to be a backbone of chocolate here. I'm not really getting it. Um, there's supposed to be a subtle touch of hops again, not really getting it. It tastes like Jameson, honestly. Um, if I had more of a beer palette, I think I'd probably appreciate it more. Uh, it doesn't mean it's bad. It, it's pretty damn good. Um, but I think if I were to go for any of Jameson's entries, this, if I had to pick one, this wouldn't be the one I would pick. But what do you think of this one, Mark, if you've had it? Well, if I remember right, and I had it a while ago, but I, I did definitely notice a little bit of the hops. Um, but see, now, I don't have much of a beer palate myself, but uh, of the quote-unquote foo-foo beers, I generally like the heavier stuff, so I generally like stouts. And I seem to recall that it was almost creamier than a, a, a regular Jameson, if that makes any sense. Like, smooth, definitely smoother, but it had almost like a, yeah, I guess like a, a creamy, sweeter finish a little bit. Yeah, but, I think I can... I feel like it's a little bit of, like, informed, like, I, I can't tell if I can tell that it's got a creamier finish because you're saying that or if I'm really detecting it. Um, but I also am kind of stuffed up with some allergies right now, so my palate may not be exactly what it should be for tasting right now. I'm definitely going to have to look the next time I'm at the liquor store, and if they have some, I'm definitely going to have to pick that up again. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not bad, right? I I love Jameson, um, so I, out of if I was ever going to be disappointed, I'd want to be disappointed now. 
Um, I did find it funny that when I was looking up Jameson, I came across Jameson Orange again, uh, that Jameson Orange is not called whiskey. No, it's actually considered a cordial. Yeah, which really makes me laugh at this point, because it's right on the whiskey shelf, right next to normal Jameson. (laughs) But yeah, Jameson Stout Edition. It's fine. It doesn't burn uh, quite as long as as Jameson. So I think that's probably where that creamy layer is coming in. In the fall, when we start doing merch, that's going to be your shirt. It's fine. (laughs) What do we got for whiskey news? Um, Something that at first blush sounds absolutely ridiculous, but then when you get into it, it kind of makes sense a little bit. What would you say... Mr. Uh, DJ, sir, if I were to tell you that as of five days ago now, as we're recording this, the term Scotch whiskey has been trademarked in the United States of America. I'd say that's ridiculous because we don't make Scotch. Now, the good thing is, number one, we're okay because it's been trademarked without the E. Now... Uh, number two is it actually was trademarked by the Scotch Whiskey Association. And they are, of course, the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Trade union, trade association. They basically govern, they're the sanctioning body, if we're going to use a racing term, for all of the uh, distilleries in Scotland and all of the employees. So... Uh, They're doing this now to actually protect the integrity of Scotch whiskey. We, you know, we've talked a lot on this show. We know how funny they are. You know, it has to be water from Scotland. It has to be, you know, certain barrels. You have to use certain peat, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, they went one step further, and they've registered the term Scotch whiskey. Uh, It's received a certification trademark in the United States of America, and a Mark Kent, who's the chief executive of the Scotch Whiskey Association, he says that this is a milestone for Scotland's natural drink in our largest global market. And basically what this comes down to uh, are counterfeiters. This is another way to help stop counterfeiters. Basically, uh, it's kind of like, you know, the, what is it, the RICO laws and a lot of the things that they get the mafia for. This is another thing they could hit you for. If you get caught now counterfeiting scotch whiskey, which I know we've talked about it before, and it is a very real thing, but it just sounds silly when you say it like that. But if you get caught making and distributing, quote-unquote, fake scotch, they can now hit you for trademark infringement on top of everything else. Which kind of makes sense. And uh, at first, it was definitely uh, like, huh? But then as they went into it, we talked about this in a previous episode. Last year, 2021, $5.5 billion was the worldwide sale of Scotch whiskey. But I don't know if we mentioned this in that episode, just over $1 billion, so just over 20% of all Scotch sales were in the U.S. alone. So we are by far the biggest consumers of Scotch whiskey, even probably more than Scotland, which is kind of fucked up when you think about it. I mean, I'm not surprised. You know, Scotland brings the product, but we bring the pretension. We do. 
Um, and so because of that, Mr. Kent goes on to say that this registration offers Scotch whiskey a greater degree of legal protection and will allow us to take action against those who seek to cash in on the heritage, craft, and quality of genuine scotch. Uh, so there you have it, folks. You shouldn't be counterfeiting scotch anyway. You know, just do what few does. Just call it an American. I think that's kind of clever. Uh, but now they can nail you for uh, trademark infringement as well. And then you get the feds involved and nothing goes well when the feds get involved. But yes, as of right now, after what, 180 years, however the hell long it is, scotch whiskey is actually trademarked in the U.S. So anytime we review a scotch that we just keep going trademark, trademark, trademark. Is it actually trademarked in Scotland? Yes, that was actually a, uh, the other part of the article. It's apparently been trademarked in just over 100 countries, and Mr. Kent was uh, bemoaning the fact that it has not been... It was the most difficult to acquire a trademark in the U.S. Huh. What about Japan? Is Japan just screwed? Uh, it does not go into any specifics in this, this article that I have here about Japan. But on the face of it, without knowing any additional information, yes... <laughs> but I don't know. Oh, man. Well, I, I, we may be seeing the end of Japanese whiskey as we know it. But of or course, Japanese if, scotch, at least. Yeah, Japanese scotch. We did actually talk on a previous whiskey news that uh, a couple of Japanese distilleries had banded together and they had set some new guidelines for Japanese whiskey. So hopefully that will continue um, and they can get, they can continue their market share. But yeah, things are getting really interesting over the last, well, God, how long have we been doing this podcast now? Almost three years. There's yeah. been embargoes. There's been trade wars. There's been trademarking. There's been lawsuits. Um, there's really a lot going on behind the scenes that we don't talk about. Seriously. But hey, uh, on to less economic news. What are we doing for tools of the trade? Well, I'm returning to one of my favorite topics, which is bitters. I, I just, I love them. I want to talk about them. They're fantastic. It makes me feel like an alchemist to talk about them. So we're going to come back and talk about them again. Fitting this week with my drink. So right. go on. Uh, so I did um, make it a little bit more specific this week. So there is a company uh, called the Portland Bitters Project. And they make interesting bitters like any bitters company would. But they have made bitters for uh, liquors other than whiskey, which I thought was really interesting, Mark, because when we think bitters, how, how, mu how much have you and I talked about how few whiskey cocktails there are? Yep. And yet, when I think bitters, I never think anything other than whiskey. No, it's true. I mean... If you put a gun to my head and told me to name something else that needs bitters. I mean, I can think of cocktails that have other liquors in them other than just whiskey, but it's always whiskey, right? Right. There's always whiskey in it involved in some capacity. So the Portland Bitters Project has attempted to correct this gross oversight, and they have created a product called the Gin Adventure Kit. And I think this is fucking amazing. Uh, so they put out three new bitters, a rose bitters, a woodland bitters, and a lavender bitters, which I think is fantastic. 
I was going to say, gee, I wonder which one of the three is your favorite. Uh, so I have tried the rose one. I haven't tried the rest of them yet. Um, but in doing so, they have kind of opened up an interesting conversation about uh, why bitters are only really whiskey forward and why we're not using them for other things. Um, I would have to imagine that um, bitters can be used with other liquors and raise up flavors out of other liquors. But we tend to think that whiskey is the liquor that gets interesting flavor notes from its aging process. Uh, So I did want to raise up one other cocktail area before we get into what you can do with these gin bitters, which is tequila. Um, There is a very specific couple of bitters that I would say are more tequila forward and they're used in tequila cocktails and not used as much as whiskey. And it's your uh, spiced, spicy bitters, like your pepper bitters and your chocolate bitters. And I have seen quite a few variants on uh, margaritas and po- uh, palomas and things like that that uh, use the one or, or both of those bitters. You'll even see like Aztec chocolate bitters out there. Um, and those two bitters generally are uh, they're marketed more for things like tequila drinks or maybe like Bloody Marys. Uh, but these gin bitters, uh, I mean, they're very floral, perfect for, for gin. Uh, and, I mean, I would recommend if you're going to go with one of these bitters, try to find a bitter, try to find a gin that has this flavor uh, in its botanical makeup um so they actually have a variant on the vesper uh it's an ounce and a half of gin half an ounce of vodka a quarter ounce of lilit blank and a dash of woodland bitters expressed with a lemon peel uh, which i think is really interesting and i did make uh some gin and tonics over the weekend uh i did the summer solstice offering from um always forget what my favorite gin is and I don't know why I can't remember it Mark help me out here well you're not a Tangeray man are you no what's the um Hendrix Hendrix yes you do like Hendrix uh yeah so Hendrix put, puts out a summer offering called the summer solstice and it is a little bit more rose forward uh so I used some rose bitters and just a G&T and and lightened on uh, kind of backed off the the lime a little bit and use some elderflower tonic water, it totally amped it up in a completely different direction. Definitely try that out. Uh, they also offer a variant of the Gimlet, two ounces of gin, an ounce of fresh lime juice, uh, an ounce of simple syrup, and two dashes of the woodland bitters. Or you can kind of go off reservation and get a couple of dashes of orange bitters in here. Uh, there's also a what kind of looks like a reverse martini. Um, almost like, man, it's sweet vermouth. It's two ounces of sweet vermouth to one ounce of gin to one dash of rose bitters. This almost seems like that reverse Manhattan you did, but swapping out gin. gin. Yep, pretty much. So uh, that that's kind of just a really quick tools of the trade today. Um, we talk a lot about bitters. Usually we talk about bitters as like the seasoning in the cocktail. Uh, there are... I guess you technically can't call these mocktails because bitters are alcoholic. Um, but there are low alcohol drinks you can make by mixing 
Uh, three to four dashes of insert your favorite bitter here with just four ounces of soda water and maybe serve with a lemon wedge. Uh, that is technically a cocktail. It's called Bitters and Soda. Um, but it, it's also a really good way to kind of get a sense of what is the flavor profile of this bitter. Um, some of the bitters are pretty obvious, right? Angostura, Peychaud's, they've, they've got a good history. Orange and chocolate. Uh, I mean, the, it's, it's one flavor note. Uh, rose, lavender, pretty easy. But you get stuff in, like, you get cinnamon bitters. You get um, cardamom bitters. You've got these Woodland or Hamilton bitters. There's, there's other kinds of bitters out there that you may not know what the flavor is. So try, try it out. Try bitters and soda. See what you think. See, see what kind of flavor that brings out. And then start pairing it with liquors that bring that out as well. Um, you know, some of those spiced bitters might be really great in a Bloody Mary or chocolate bitters might actually be good with this, um, Caskmates stout that whiskey that I'm drinking might bring out some more of that stout flavor that I'm, I'm just missing. I'm, you know, I I think it's going to click. Try it again when you're not all stuffed up and, you know, when you're relaxing, you know, which I know you haven't done a whole lot of, and you're not going to be able to do a whole lot of more in the next couple of weeks, but, <laughs> um, you know, take a little you time. What are, what do they say? Take a mental health break and try it again. Uh, I actually drank it over on the rocks. So maybe it'd be like an iced coffee for you, but no, that was good. I am interested in the, the rose bitters because you can, you can definitely make some hay with that. Um, I'm not the biggest gin guy compared to you, but despite what you say, I don't hate it. I do like <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, that, that actually sounds really good. I love it. So, all right, we are on to the wonderful world of headcanon and fan theories. And why don't you start us off? Cause you have more than I do. I do, but I also had a really hard time researching this one because I was trying to come up with fan theories that I hold or headcanons yes. that I hold. That's what I was doing. Yes. Okay. So we're on the same page. Yeah. And I did a couple and then I scrapped all of it because all of mine were these two characters are gay and in love. <laughs> so as much as that would be fun to talk to Mark about over a glass of whiskey, that doesn't make a great podcast for you just to hear my wild ideas about how gay the characters in Prince of Tennis really are. So Okay, I was going to say, could you at least give us one of the ones you deleted? But okay, there you go. Oh, yeah. I mean, Prince of Tennis, I did contemplate putting Voltron on here because there is a huge uh, fandom around the male characters in Voltron being gay with each other, um, which, you know, never really came to pass in the Legendary Defender series on Netflix. Uh there's just a lot. There's just a lot of... <sighs> I decided to edge away from it because we're doing headcanon and fan theories and we're not doing OTPs. So I figured I would go with my favorite headcanon and fan theory, which is about the Tim Burton claymation uh, movies. So specifically the three movies that we're talking about in order of them coming out uh, would be Frankenweenie, The Nightmare Before Christmas, and Corpse Bride. 
Frank Catalini was before the Nightmare Before Christmas. Huh. Uh, well, not. fun. Mm, there are two Frank and Weenies. Okay. See, I'm learning something. Yep. Uh, so there was a half hour live action Frank and Weenie that Tim Burton did before doing get, getting into claymation. And then he made like a full feature film claymation one that came out after Corpse Bride. Okay. But my DVD of um, Nightmare, excuse me, of Nightmare Before Christmas has the half hour live action film. And that's what I grew up knowing as Frankenweenie. So, in the order of, uh, not in order of publication, but in the order of Frankenweenie to Corpse Bride to The Nightmare Before Christmas, the the fan theory and my headcanon is that the male lead and the dog are the same person for all three movies. Yeah, I have heard this one before. So the main character of Frankenweenie is Victor Frankenstein, and he brings his dog Sparky back from the dead. And the fan theory is that Victor Frankenstein then grows up to become Victor Van Dort, uh, the the groom in Corpse Bride, uh, who uh, gets reunited with his skeleton dog Scraps, and Scraps is Sparky. Victor is Victor. And then when Victor and Scraps officially die, they move on and are reborn as Jack Skellington, the Pumpkin King of Halloween Town, and his ghost dog, Zero. And I love it. It's my headcanon. I think it's it's great. It's really fun to do a movie marathon and watch all three uh, and just kind of pretend like, oh, yeah, it it's growing up, and, and that's how it works. So, what do you got? Do you, do you want to do one of yours? Yeah, we'll do one of mine. Uh, the The first one I have is, is kind of interesting, and it's one that when I first heard it, I went, nah. And then when I started watching the movies again, I went, huh. Are you familiar with the fan theory that uh, Marty McFly has died numerous times, both during and then before... Well, technically before, because it gets complicated. It's time travel. Uh, Back to the Future. Huh. I don't think I've heard of this. So, basically, any situation in the movies where he's, like, improbably saved, like, uh, for instance, when they're in the railroad tunnel in the third movie or when he gets trapped in the trunk in the first movie by Biff's goons or, you know, when he's going to get beat up or anything... That has actually happened before, and Marty has been killed. Oh, dear. And Doc just goes back in time and either directly saves him, like in the tunnel in the second movie where he actually pulls him up, or in the second movie where Marty jumps off the building and the DeLorean's just there to catch him, or he arranges for someone else to save him. The cavalry in the third movie, uh, when the Native Americans come, or the, uh, the, the band at the dance that breaks him out of the trunk. Mm-hmm. So but basically, every time that you see something that you go, oh, man, how did he get out of that? No, no, he died, and then Doc went back and undid the whole thing. Whoa. And what kind of leads a little bit of canon adjacentness to it is a couple of years ago, what was it, 2016, when there was you know all the celebrations and everything, uh, they interviewed Zemeckis, the director, 
And someone asked him, they sort of, were, it was an interview and then they were doing like fan questions, almost like an AMA. And someone asked him, how did Marty and Doc meet? Because it's never discussed. Like they just mm-hmm. start in the first movie as like best of friends. And he said, oh, basically Marty was this rebellious little kid who was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old. And his parents and everybody in the neighborhood said, oh, that creepy scientist down the street, you know, he does all this dangerous stuff. He does all this. He does all that. Well, Marty was curious, and he went and broke into Doc's lab. And Doc found him and was like, oh, you're not a vandal. You're just a kid. You want to learn. Okay. So, like, if he's that rebellious at a young age that he wants to go and break into a lab, what else is he doing? (laughs) And so it kind of, like, you know, it's a fun little thing to think about. It explains some of the plot holes and some of the, you know, Hollywood moments. And it just makes you kind of go, huh. Because if you have a time machine, you know, despite what Doc says... they do meddle with the future quite a bit in those movies, even though they say they're not supposed to. So it just makes you think. That's fantastic. All right, what's your second one? Uh, I went with Star Wars, and I'm shocked. I had to. I had to narrow it down to just three because there's so many fucking Star Wars fan theories. So the first one is that Jar Jar Binks is a Sith Lord. Now, okay, see, I have seen this floating around, but was that not just, like, a meme? There's rumors that he played stupid and was the one who, like, caused everybody to meet in the first movie, and he did it on purpose. Okay. And then in the second prequel movie, he's in the background as a senator, and it gives him more of an opportunity to do nefarious things in the background. I don't think it's real. I think it is kind of a meme. Uh, I think it's kind of funny to contemplate and watch the movies thinking that, but eh, probably not real. Um, The second one is uh, of the sequel trilogy. Uh, So spoilers, if you haven't seen the sequel trilogy, shut, shut the podcast off or skip like 15 seconds. Uh, In the first movie... Han Solo dies and the movie makes it look as if um, his son, Ben, kills him with his with his lightsaber. Uh, The fan theory is that knowing that such an important losing somebody so important to him without the resolution was the only thing that could bring Ben back from the dark side. the fan theory is that Han Solo is the one himself who turned the lightsaber on and impaled himself on Ben's lightsaber. Well, I mean, Harrison Ford did want to die in Empire Strikes Back, so maybe. Mm-hmm, maybe. The last one, and I think this is just really funny, the reason that Obi-Wan left Luke on Tatooine uh, is because Anakin hates sand. Now, see, you're laughing. Now, see, I've actually seen the prequels, so I could talk. I could get into this discussion. You're laughing because of all the memes, but this one makes sense. It does make sense. Uh, I mean, I've also seen the entire Obi Wan show, and they try to explain it a little bit better. I don't know, man. I think it's because Obi Wan hates sand. Uh, Anakin hates sand, and that's why Luke is there. Because, I mean, I can remember being however the hell old I was when The Phantom Menace came out. And I was like, really? 
They have an entire galaxy and we're back on Tatooine. <laughs> so, like, it kind of, you know, I don't know. It adds up a little bit. I, that one I can see. All right, what you got? Well, the second one uh, is actually interesting because I found it in a student's uh, thesis. And I can't remember if it was a doctoral thesis or if it was a master's thesis. I want to say master's. But regardless, this was an actual paper that is online available for peer review, or it was. I think, I think it's a couple of years old now. And it's a psychology uh, major. And this individual is arguing that our favorite person in the world, Superman. I'm already rolling my eyes. I know. Truth, justice, and the American way. But this, this individual is arguing that Superman actually, despite my years of uh, protesting... Superman actually does have a flaw, DJ. Hmm. He has a terminal weakness. He has an Achilles heel, if you will. Oh, yeah. It's a green crystal called kryptonite. <laughs> no, no. No, no. His one flaw is his morality. What? Yes, that is his one weakness. And in this paper, they compare Superman to uh, someone far more interesting and far more popular, Batman, who, of course, has a code, but you can't really say he has morals. He doesn't murder in most versions of the story, and he doesn't use guns since the mid-40s, the early ones he did. But otherwise, he's not really that good of a guy. So basically, the argument here is that in order, you know, the DC has actually given their poster child the ultimate weakness, that he is this harbinger, this pantheon, this archetype of everything that we hold good and just in the world. And because of that, it goes on to talk about my boy, Mr. Alexander Joseph Luther. Mm-hmm. And it said that that is what makes Lex such a cunning villain, and that is how Lex actually gets out of things, in that he creates... Uh, what are the kids calling today? Trolley problems. Ugh. Where basically you can catch me, Superman, but it'll be immoral because X will happen and your morality is there and you will save them because of your morality. And so basically what this paper is arguing is the line from uh, Spaceballs. Good is dumb. Is <laughs> <laughs> basically what they're arguing. But it makes Superman look like an idiot, so I like it and I now subscribe to that. <laughs> That's terrible. Yes, Superman is. I agree with you. (laughs) (laughs) What's your next one? Uh, My next one, I feel like, is one of the more popular cinematic theories, and that is about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes, this this is probably one of the oldest fan theories. Yeah. Uh, So the concept is that Ferris Bueller is not actually a real person. He is merely a figment of Cameron's imagination, and a plot device that Cameron uses to convince himself to get away with things and do things that are out of character. Almost as if, like, Ferris Bueller is an alternate personality or an alter ego to Cameron. There is a rumor, and I don't know how true it is, I've never seen the author directly address it, but there is a rumor that that is, this fan theory is what Chuck Palahniuk based Fight Club off of. Ooh, interesting. Isn't it, though? Yeah. 
<laughs> I I kind of love this idea because you know Cameron's the one he's he he's he tries to to live up to everyone's expectations and obey all the rules and he hates his stepdad and he you know he's homesick and so he invents this character who is his best friend his ride or die friend who's charismatic and outgoing and is basically all about fuck authority and just puts himself out there and gets the girl and gets away with, you know, anything he wants to and talks Cameron into doing things and kind of gives Cameron both like an outlet and a scapegoat. And I watching Ferris Bueller's day off with this fan theory in mind is a completely different experience. Oh yeah. So, yeah, it's definitely something I, I don't know if I ascribe to it because I do love the character of Ferris, but it's it's fun. G- give this movie a watch with that with that theory in mind. A good fan theory is a lot like a good conspiracy theory. And I know conspiracy theories are getting a lot of bad PR now and justifiably so. But there are good conspiracy theories and bad conspiracy theories. Yeah. And the fun part of a good conspiracy theory is there's just enough there that makes you go, hmm. That's and, all you need. Yeah, and the, that Ferris Bueller theory, that's definitely... You watch the movie and go, oh, I can see it. All right. Yeah, so good. What's your next one? Well, that's a good segue, because I'm going to talk about another uh, fairly well-known movie fan theory, and that's Pulp Fiction. What was actually in the briefcase? Now, I know you're not the biggest Quentin Tarantino fan. No, I've never and, seen Pulp Fiction. Oh, that was going to be my next question. Have you actually seen Pulp Fiction? Well, spoiler alert from a movie from 1994, folks. Uh, In the movie, there is a briefcase that is basically a MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. And several times throughout the movie, the briefcase is opened. And every time they're about to say what is in the briefcase or they're about to show it or whatever, something happens, you never actually get to see what in the Sam Hell is in the briefcase. So there's numerous fan theories out there, but the most popular one is that it's actually the soul of Marcellus Wallace's character, or Ving Rhames' character, Marcellus Wallace. And in the original script, it actually was supposed to be uh, the diamonds that were stolen from Reservoir Dogs. And some at some point during shooting, Quentin Tarantino went, ah, that's just, you know, repeating myself. And so officially... It's nothing. It doesn't matter. It's whatever you want it to be. There's no official line as to what's in the briefcase. So uh, people have looked at this, you know, uh, Marcellus Wallace is an evil character. He's a gangster. He he's, does a lot of bad things. They actually start the movie by talking about how supposedly his character murdered a man for rubbing his wife's feet. Um, so, you know, he's evil. He doesn't have a soul. Ving Rhames actually cut himself shaving his head during the filming of this movie, which sounds like a stupid bit of trivia. Why would anyone know that? Well, because of that, he has a Band-Aid on the back of his neck. Uh, And Tarantino, being Tarantino, loved it. They left it in for shooting. So there's several prominent scenes where the camera is focused on this large bandage on the rather thick neck of Ving Rhames. He's built like me. (laughs) And uh, in... Ancient myth, mythical uh, traditions, some of them, that is where the soul escapes, the base of your head, where your, where your brain stem basically connects, where your head and your neck connect, and that's where the cut is. So his soul has been removed. 
to make it fancy, since originally they were supposed to be diamonds in the briefcase, the props department actually rigged up uh, like a light bulb inside the case that when it opened, this light came on and there was like this eminent glow, like a radio glow. Well, in movies and in video games and in other media, when there's a soul, what happens? There's a glow, there's an aura. You have all this in the case. At one point, the case renders uh, uh, John Travolta completely speechless. So basically, you put everything together, and it's another one of those things where it's kind of, I don't know if I necessarily ascribe to it, but it makes enough sense in the context of the world. Like, why else would Marcellus Wallace want this case back so badly? What could possibly be in there that he's doing all this for this case? And he's like, oh, it's his soul. Okay. <laughs> and one fun thing, and we'll move on. Uh, if you have the special edition DVD of Pulp Fiction at home, dear listeners, they had a very cool and very 90s thing on it. DJ, do you remember pop-up video? I don't. Uh, well, on MTV, there used to be a show. When MTV still played music videos, there was actually a show called Pop-Up Video, and they would play music videos, and while the videos were playing, these little text box would pop up on the screen with just little trivia facts. And there is a setting on the Pulp Fiction Special Edition DVD where you could play the entire movie like a pop-up video. And at some point, someone mentions this theory to Tarantino, and he's like, oh, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> so it's at least canon adjacent, which is kind of fun. I love that. What's your next one? Uh, well, I couldn't pick... I, I couldn't air the list down, man. Uh, I, I got it down to seven. Uh, but my next one is Pokemon. I have talked about some of these but I'm, I'm going to blaze through these pretty quick. So, first one, the player character murders Gary's Raticate. In Pokemon Red, Blue, and Yellow, uh, when you first fight your, your rival in the video games, uh, he has a Rattata that later in later fights has evolved into a Raticate until you reach Lavender Town. Lavender Town is known as the burial place of Pokemon in the Kanto region. And it's very spooky. It has the best theme music of... It, it's, uh, I don't know. It's iconic. It's one of my favorite pieces of video game music of all times is the Lavender Down, Town theme. And when you go to go into the, like, the tower, the Pokemon tower that has all of these Pokemon graves... Before you're allowed to enter the tower, Gary walks out and, you know, says some shit and leaves town. And he seems pretty upset. Uh, and when you later fight him in the game, he no longer has Eradicate. And the, I, the fan theory is that you, uh, through fighting and dueling with, with Pokemon, end up killing his Eradicate by mistake and when you meet him in Lavender Town, he is burying his Raticate, and that's why he's pissy at you. Pretty good fan theory. Uh, I, I definitely ascribe to this one. Uh, Going to blaze these next couple. Ditto is a failed Mew clone. This comes from the fact that out of the original 151, Mew and Ditto are the only Pokemon who have uh, the move Transform. Uh, they both have it by default, and uh, Ditto has roughly the same color scheme as Mew, and you know that they were trying many, many experiments to try and 
duplicate Mew, and we have, they eventually succeeded with Mew too. Uh, but the idea is that there's a ton of experiments throughout the land uh, that all just became Ditto. Pretty okay. fun. Uh, there is a relatively new Pokemon uh, that came, I believe, in Gen 6 named Mimikyu. Mimikyu is a ghost and fairy type. Uh, the whole thesis with Mimikyu is that you never can see its true form. Uh, and it wears a badly put together costume that makes it look like Pikachu. Uh, the the fan theory is that it, all Mimikyu are actually dead Pichus who never got to become Pikachus. And that's why they uh, they are ghosts under there and they dress up as Pikachu. That one's pretty dark. That one is pretty fucking dark. So is this one. Uh, there are... <laughs> There are a lot of rumors as to what a Cubone is underneath the skull mask that it wears. And there are two prominent theories. The first is that Cubones are baby Kangaskhans whose mothers have died. So they are wearing the skulls of their mother Kangaskhans. Uh, the other one is that Cubones are Charmanders whose flames have gone out. Okay. No, yeah, both of them pretty dark. Pokemon uh, the, uh, fan theories get pretty rough. Yeah, I don't know if I should have picked an absinthe-based cocktail for this fucking little <laughs> journey we're going on, but all right, go ahead. Uh, Gengar, is, as, as a ghost Pokemon, is the literal shadow of the moon Pokemon Clefable. Uh, and there's been a ton of analysis done on this one. I think it's all been all but confirmed. Uh if you look at the two Pokemon, they're roughly the same size. They're roughly the same shape. And it's very plausible because, you know, he's a ghost Pokemon. He could come out of a shadow very easily. Uh, that Gengars are just animate shadows of these, like, celestial moon-type Pokemon, which is pretty interesting. Uh, moon, Mew is under the truck. To this day... 25 years after the games originally came out, there are still people who believe that Mew is underneath the, tr the one truck that takes a hard time to get to um, in, in Pokemon Red and Blue. And the remakes, uh, the truck is removed. The interesting part of this is that it's, all, it's been confirmed that there was a city where the, the truck lives and that the developers um, missed removing the truck, thinking that it was an area that a player could never get to uh, when they removed the city from the map. And that there are some old concept arts that you can find of a truck sitting in front of like the mayor's house of the city. Hmm. Uh, last one. Uh, and probably the most dire of all of them is that Pokemon is a post-apocalyptic world. Uh, so that in the distant past, something horrible happened, uh, animals mutated, and we began to like team up with animals and eventually got to a new level of technology, but uh, ultimately the Pokemon world is built on the bones of our own. Yeah, I, okay. How you doing, buddy? I, that last one kind of took me for a loop. I mean, all the other ones, I was kind of following your logic. Then it's like, oh, all right, Fallout kind of type world. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's a ton more of Pokemon fan theories. 
Uh, if you ever want to completely fuck yourself up and not be able to sleep for a night, just uh, just go look up uh, Pokemon fan theories about ghost Pokemon. No, I, I no. Mm. Hard pass. There is one where every child that gets lost in the woods of the Pokemon world turns into a Phantump, which is a ghost Pokemon. Okay. So what you got, buddy? Well, on a lighter note, I went to uh, another one of our favorite franchises. I went to the Animaniacs world, and more specifically, Pinky and the Brain. And so there's two actual fan theories, one I kind of subscribe to and one that I don't. Uh, The first one is that the entire show, all their wacky adventures, all the uh, inventions, uh, all their plots take over the world, the entire thing is actually one big experiment by Acme Labs. (laughs) The labs know what they're doing. They feed them resources. It's how they're able to get things. And they're the ones sort of throwing everything in their way and the theory kind of branches off on what specifically they're studying. You know, is it just hyper-intelligent mice? Is it how close to taking over the world somebody could actually do, et cetera, et cetera. But the entire thing is basically orchestrated, funded, and studied by Acme Labs. And Pinky and the Brain themselves are just too oblivious, too stupid, too focused, or whatever you subscribe to, to even notice. And it kind of explains... You know, yes, Brain is a genius, but a lot of the stuff they come up with isn't sort of like, you know, just Flintstone technology or Fallout technology where it's just stuff laying around. Like, a lot of the stuff is, like, computers and mechanical stuff and circuit boards. And it's like, where is he getting all this equipment from? <laughs> um, you know, so if some security guard accidentally leaves a door unlocked, you know, to a supply room in the labs, that kind of explains that away a little bit. The other one that I'm not really a fan of just because I love the character of the brain, but it is actually really interesting, is that their roles are actually reversed. I love this fan theory. I've heard this one. I totally believe it. Pinky's actually the super intelligent one in brain. Uh, you know, depending on what you read, is either insane or possibly on the autism spectrum or he has, he has something going on. And you're kind of only seeing things from his perspective, but it's not reality in any shape, way, or form. And it is. It's another one of those you could sit there and go, huh, okay, I can kind of see it. But I just love the character of the brain, so I personally don't subscribe to it. But there is a little nugget there. I love this theory because there's definitely times in the pinky and brain a pinky in the brain where you can see like uh, pinky will like be off to the side and hit something. And then suddenly the experiment will work or yeah. So I like pinky would be like acting stupid. Um, and, and it's kind of pitched as this weird, well, you know, he's even a broken watches right twice a day. Ha ha ha. Look at stupid pinky. But really it's like, Oh no, pinky knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, they definitely, either intentionally or unintentionally, they leave little kernels out that you could pick up on it. And if you do watch the show from the perspective of Brain is the Madman, it puts a few interesting spins on things, let me tell you. It seriously does. I, I love that theory. I, I think that's probably my headcanon for Pinky and the Brain. Either way, it's a great show, folks. You should go watch it and agree or disagree with either one of us. doesn't matter. Just 
fucking watch any of the Pinky the Brain skits. It's, I, they're fantastic. I should have looked up Animaniacs. I bet there's a ton of headcanon shit for Animaniacs, too. Oh, my God. I'm sure there probably is. All right. What, what do you got left? All right. My last category is Disney. Shocked. Uh, so Eeyore used to be a human child. The, wait, what? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this one comes from the fact that depending on which version you read, Eeyore doesn't come into the story until later. And that uh, he is a human child who got lost and couldn't find his way back from the Hundred Acre Wood. And that what happens to children who can't make their way back and grow up is that they become an animal in the Hundred Acre Wood. And that's why he's sad and depressed is that he remembers being a human. Okay. Uh, These aren't aren't going to be ha-ha-ha fun, Mark. No, but, I mean, wow, you... You know, you don't really believe in building to a crescendo, do you? Jesus. No, All right. I don't. Uh, in uh, Beauty and the Beast, the enchantress who cursed him was his jilted lover. Yeah, that would make sense. It does. And depending on the version you read, there, there's a, I think there's a, like a YA novel that came out years and years later called Beastly. I think that is actually the canon in that book. Uh, Gaston killed Bambi's mom. Gaston's a dick. Uh, there is definitely a scene in Beauty and the Beast where you can see a bunch of mounted heads and there is a deer, a female deer. Uh, Ariel's mother was killed by Captain Hook. Okay. Uh, which is why Ariel doesn't have a mother. And possibly the most upsetting Disney fan theory I've found so far is from Wreck-It Ralph of all things. Now, you've seen Wreck-It Ralph, right? The first one. Yeah, you only need to see the first one for this one. Uh, When Ralph tries to get the medal from the soldier world, he unleashes these crazy bugs into the rest of the games. Remember that? Correct. So the fan theory uh, hinges on the fact that bugs become what they eat, and they become what they eat pretty immediately. Okay. Uh, Well, Calhoun, uh, who was one of the characters... Uh, from that world who becomes a main character in the rest of the movie, uh, she has a tragic backstory where, uh, you know, they forgot to do a perimeter check and a bug interrupted her wedding to her soulmate and ate her soulmate and she had to kill, like, all the bugs and she was super sad and that's why she's, like, such a sad character. Well, if you take the, the, the fan theory to its natural finish that means that the bug that ate her betrothed instantly became her betrothed and then she had to put it down oh god they're playing on like the zombie movie tropes but with wreck it ralph yeah (laughs) yeah i feel like i i tried to steer away from most things that were it was a dream or insert character here is actually dead or <laughs> things like that, um, because those are generally pretty sad to, to contemplate. But this one fucked me up a little bit when I thought about it. Yeah, no, that, that one's fucked up and not in the good way. Like, one of the ones I was going to do was the, the popular one that James Bond is a title and not a person. Oh, interesting. And the problem with that is if you really get into it with different things across the books and across the movies and across the video games, 
you start to like, it'll fuck you up. You're like, wait, I, uh, but that'll fuck you up in the, like my head hurts and I want to go lay down way. This is just fuck God, fucking depressing. God damn. I thought the Marty dying thing over and over <laughs> again was fucked up, but he at least lives at the end. I'll keep saving him. Jesus. Yeah. The fucking record Ralph one was the hardest hitting one. And I saved it for last. Bastard. <laughs> Take us out, buddy. All right, so, yeah, on that fucking wonderful note about a bride killing her fucking husband at the altar, uh, that was the Wit and Whiskey cast. <laughs> Send all your hate tweets to at DJ Gagnon. No, um, <laughs> thank, thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us. You know, our schedule's been wacky with the world ending and whatnot on our ends, but we're going to keep trying to keep on. We're, we're, what, 11 episodes into the season now. It does not feel like we're that deep into this season, but we are. No. Uh, yeah, we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more offline, but I think this season will carry probably carry us up to the the birth of uh, of the new addition to the Shire Studios here. Um, it's looking that way. Yeah, but we'll probably get a few in the can. Maybe we'll do like a short season uh and then come back around Christmas with a special or something like that. We we'll figure something out. It, we're we're definitely not doing away with the podcast. You're not getting rid of us that easy, folks. Dear God, no. And regardless of what our uh, when uh, we record or who or what or how many episodes, they come out on Fridays. They come out at 8 o'clock. That's become pretty standard now, thankfully. Facebook was the last holdover, and July 1st, they shut all that down. Uh, we're on, God, 30-some bloody apps. We're all the big ones. Spotify, Apple, Podbean, Listen Notes, Google, Samsung, you name it. We're on. There's a whole list of them. You can find them. We're on our website, wittenwhiskeycast.com. We're on Facebook, wittenwhiskeycast. We're on Instagram. Uh, there is an E in whiskey, unlike the trademark for scotch. Uh, but there is no H in wit, so look us up. Drop us a line. Uh well, you know, big shout out to Nuno Henry Silva for intro and our outro. He's the one, he's the rock solid, reliable member of the Witten Whiskey. Yeah, he shows up every week. He shows up every week. He brings his lunch pail and goes to fucking work. So we <laughs> love you, Nuno. We're going to send you to a SoundCloud. We're going to give you links for his books that are out. Uh, what are we doing next week, buddy? You know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, how, how's the old man doing? Do we, do we want to get him in? Uh He's got X, Y, and Z going on. I don't know if we're going to be able to get him in, but I have, or at least not for next week. But, you know, I did have a thought, you know, because we originally were talking about hobby cars and whiskey, but after uh, the uh, experience we had down Carlisle where we went to a national show, I've done a lot of small shows, but we went to a national show. How do you feel about doing an episode on just, you know, show cars concourse the the whole scene behind the scene because it was very eye-opening for me yeah uh i think that could be interesting um i mean maybe we could do like exhibitions in whiskey and i could talk about like martial arts tournaments behind the scenes yes because you know uh, as you explained to me once they're not all uh it's not all sparring katas are a big thing too it is yeah i let's do that i i like that idea so there you have it, folks. Next week right here, we're going to do exhibitions in whiskey. We're going to be demonstrating all over your ears. <laughs> yeah. See, I could, be, I could be creepy too, but in a different way. <laughs> Gross. And I can't think of a better way to end. So on that note, I'm Marcus Eddy. He's DJ Gagnon. Salute. Cheers. Cheers.